So one of my aspirations, one of my core intentions in life is to be emotionally generous. And I fail at this intention over and over again, but sometimes I do get it right. And I think one of the times that I got it right was the Sunday after the Super Bowl, a week after the Super Bowl, exactly. And it was right here at Wellsprings. Uh, if you've been here before, you know I am not at all an Eagles fan, not in the least. I'm a Giants fan. I didn't like this outcome, but so many of you loved it and made you happy. And I wanted to celebrate your happiness. And so I put together a special playlist that played before the service. Fly, Eagles, fly, and fly like an eagle, and gonna fly now, and all the Philadelphia songs. And, um, some of you actually noticed this, and thanked me for it. And, you know, so I can check that off. On that day, I was emotionally generous. <laughs> um, however, I, with this playlist, there was one song that I left on it that really should have been on it, but I, I would have had to give a forewarning for that like we did today. And so now you have been forewarned. And so let me show it to you. I think you all know it. Those of you who are Eagles fans, you Philadelphians, you'll never get enough of that, tell the truth, right? By the way, if we had to pick a peak Philadelphia moment, a large, bearded, bellowing man in a mummer's <laughs> uniform, screaming obscenities, like just add a cheesesteak or a tasty cake, and this is the peak Philadelphia moment of all time, right? And, and I get why it happened this way. Like, actually, I think no other city in the world celebrating a championship could have done exactly this. This was so Philadelphia. And this whole thing of we don't care with an edge and with the profanity and everything. Um, Philadelphia has a little bit of a chip on its shoulder <laughs> when it comes to the reputation of who y'all are as, as sports fans. You know, this happens when you throw snowballs at Santa Claus, right? You will get a reputation. And here's the thing. I don't think Philadelphia is any worse. I, I think Philadelphia sports fans, you know, the extreme parts are awful. But most sports fans are awful. The behavior I have seen at professional sporting events throughout my entire life, and I've gone to all the major sporting events in all kinds of different cities, it is uniformly what we put up with behavior there is just terrible. And let me say this. The most well-behaved major sporting event that I ever attended was right here in Philadelphia. 2013, it was the March Madness, it was the, you know, the NCAA, I think it was the third or the fourth round. Everyone was polite, and they cheered, 18,000 people in Wells Fargo. It was an NCAA event, because you know what the one difference was of all those other events in which the behavior was awful. No alcohol. <laughs> they don't serve alcohol at NCAA events. You draw your own conclusions. So, that kind of energy, this kind of phrase, no one likes us, we don't care, with the profanity. You can find this a lot on the internet. This is one of my favorites. Let me check the field where I grow my fucks. Oh, look, I have none to give. <laughs> you can find, like, limitless variations on this. 
You can find one with Julie Andrews and the sound of music coming out singing. Well, not really singing, but as if in the movie. I look at all the fucks I have to give. I mean, it's amazing. You can find variation after variation after variation on this. You can also find the opposite thing as well, too. Like this. Give a damn. Many dams. More dams than anyone. Taken to the extremes are both absolutely incorrect, right? Taken to the extreme of I don't care at all. Add in a little profanity. We have sociopathy. <laughs> Go to the other extreme. Giving a damn about everything all the time. It's exhausting. It's enervating. And it's completely codependent. And by the way, apologies if this language offends you here today. So we start this new message series, Words That Work. I wanted to see if I got your attention. I think I do now. <laughs> um, and by the way, if you want to talk to me about the fact that you're upset about this after the service, you can give me your feedback. I care. And I don't care. I'll listen, though. The answer to give or not is both and. This new series, Words That Work, are about texts and teachings, very often in small snippets that kind of go to work on our hearts. You might think of them as koans or riddles, as things that call forth new life from us, to quote from the prior message series that Reverend Lee just completed last week, Keeping It Green. We did the series maybe five or six years ago, and we used things like the serenity prayer. We used a metta meditation. And today, to start the series out, it's from T.S. Eliot, from his beautiful poem, Ash Wednesday. It's almost a prayer more than it is a poem. O oh Lord, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. By the way, Eliot, T.S. Eliot, would be completely horrified at the language I've used to this point today. He was such a snob. But, you know, T.S., T.S. Eliot. (laughs) 9.30 didn't get that. You did. Very nice. (laughs) This is how we do it here. (laughs) The the big deal, I think, about this teaching is that... um, He's actually not talking like, you know, I care about football or I don't care about baseball or I care about art, but I don't care about politics. He's not talking sequentially. To care and not to care. Teach us to care and not to care. He's actually talking about something far more subtle, more nuanced, and more transformative. Much more transformative. How to care and not to care about the same event, the same experience, simultaneously. Which is to say, in this teaching, we've entered the realm of paradox. Which means, I don't have any answers today. I only have a few pointers at some people who have taught me about kind of how I can do this and how we might do this together, this realm of paradox. Ask these questions, these koans, these riddles that call forth a new life from us that maybe we hadn't thought about before. They exist on the far thought, the far side of logical thought into some new ways of being. Like Rabbi Hillel asked 2,000 years ago, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? If I am only for myself, well, then what am I? And then concluding it helpfully, 
Not now, when? <laughs> question, question, question. Dogen, the, the great Zen teacher, 700 years ago, said to know the self, we have to study the self, and to study the self is to forget the self. <laughs> these are the paradoxes, these things that open up new ways of life. And the thing with the paradoxes, we don't figure them out, we embrace them. This is where the transformation comes in. To know the self, study the self, study the self, forget the self. What Dogen's pointing at is the same thing that I think Eliot's pointing at, that Rabbi Hillel pointed at. The truth of this amazing connection of life that we already are, that we don't have to work for, that we already belong to something greater. And actually, I think it points at the most valuable teaching any of us can ever receive. I know for me, the most valuable ongoing lesson, instruction that I've ever gotten to care and not to care simultaneously. Eliot's talking about true love. Not romantic love, not that it can't be, this true love can't include romantic love, it absolutely can, but it's more than that. It's more than sometimes the hearts and flowers, you know, the sometimes clinging love, you know, the Jerry Maguire, you complete, no, none of that. But neither is it the other side, the heavy, ominous, self-hating self-denying love that many of us learned about in the traditions in which we grew up. It's neither of those things. It's actually about something so much more subtle and real and beautiful. It's about recognizing that the moment we love, the moment we open our hearts, we are assured of having our hearts break. And so to care and to not care is to learn this delicate art of loving and letting go simultaneously. Like I said, I don't think there's any rational way to figure this out. Some of us have had some good teachers in this way of being. My first teacher, and in many ways still my best teacher, was my mom. She did this thing. I've shared some of this uh, with you in the past. Um, I remember as a really young kid, we would hold hands, three, four, five years old or so, walking down the street, or maybe she'd be walking me to school or something, and she would give me three squeezes. I love you. And then I'd squeeze back. I love you too. And then our hands would part. That's a template for all of life. (laughs) Loving and releasing. It is, as so many teachers talk about, a form of detached loving. Not detached as indifferent, but detached as in moving into a kind of love that is more than just making our love conditional upon the outcomes that we want. The outcomes that we think we will get if we do everything right. And by the way, um, damned if I know, I mean, I fail at this all the time, over and over and over again, to care and not to care. But I do get glimpses. I get glimpses in my spiritual practice. I get glimpses when I am with others and my heart is open, sometimes to their great joy or great suffering or sometimes the most quotidian, normal things. And I think you get these glimpses too. I know you have. You've shared them with me over the years. In these moments, is as if not we've gained something, but rather the ego kind of drops away and something primordial, bigger than ourselves, opens And the way I experience is this kind of radiant curiosity, connection. It's precious. It's not gained. It's not made. It's not owned. It just is. We don't get anything from it. We don't become better or wiser or smarter or more beautiful or more this or more that. It just reminds us 
of who we already are and who we might be again. And so I think the question, or one of the questions from this paradox, to care and not to care, is how do we use the dams that we don't give to grow the dams that we do give, (laughs) to grow the heart's capacity to open and to love? And again, no exact answers. I think there's only living into it. What do we not give a dam in the name of? This is the ways that love, true love, really can start to matter to us and become transformative. And I think it starts with asking yourself, maybe you want to do right now, asking yourself, which are you more likely to do? I know it's context-dependent, some relationships, some places you might give a damn, others you may not, you may care here, not there. But it's been my experience that many of us, most of us, have a, have a, a tendency or a default. I run very hot around my caring. I care too much. (laughs) For me, this transformative aspect, this transformative experience of learning to step back from my caring, not denying it, but stepping back, has changed my life in such powerful ways because I leave more space now for the other person, other people, for life itself to have an experience that is not just a projection of what I want or what I think is going on. And in that space, I become so much more curious. This is how I have started to learn how to care and not to care. It actually has introduced me to true, real intimacy. And maybe you're the other way in your default. You know, the not caring comes a little more naturally. And I don't mean that in a judgmental or unethical way. Maybe you're more Spock than I am. I'm like not at all Spock. (laughs) Spock was rigorously ethical. It's just he didn't really care. So maybe one of the things, if you find that that's your default, one of the ways to kind of turn your heart towards the other person is to really become curious. I love the teaching that says empathy cannot be uh, taught, but it can be caught. (laughs) I think if our default is to not care, to provide too much distance, we might look at the ways that we can draw ourselves closer to other people's lives and truly listen without expectation or hope of a particular kind of outcome and find that the caring naturally opens for us. This is a a balance. It's an artful tension to hold this kind of space. And I think the stakes are so critical for our hurting world. And I don't think any of us, as I said before, gets it absolutely right all the time. I think it's impossibility. Because not if we can say, okay, I've fully cared and not cared about this prior experience, this prior relationship. Now I'm going to go back to my defaults. That's the way life is. It's always going to continue to ask us to be present in the fullest ways we can. I know at times what it looks like. It looks like, for me, a story I recently heard from this person. Those of you who grew up in the 70s and 80s might remember him, Fela, Nigerian activist and musician. Um, you know, in the, in the States here, we tend to, uh, we tend to say, okay, that, that person's a musician, they're an artist, and they sprinkle a little bit of activism, even if they're really good at it, really effective in it. Um, Fela was fully musician, fully artist, fully activist on-target critic of the vestiges of colonialism within his native Nigeria, and also at the same time of the corruption, the continuing corruption of the governments under which he lived in the post-colonial era. Fela paid for this dearly. He was always under scrutiny by the powers that be. At one point, those powers broke into his house, broke into his compound, beat him within an inch of his life, and beat his mother to death. 
Fela's response to this was incredible. He hoisted his mother's coffin up onto his body and he dragged it to the gates of the ruling party. That is to care and not to care. To be able to let go on such a profound level to demonstrate something that needs to be said. Now, most of us will not face a situation exactly like what Fela did. (laughs) But I think the principle is exactly the same in our lives. How to get in touch with this kind of caring and not caring that opens up to this presence of this non-judgmental, loving awareness. I think it's a core part of any spiritual practice. It has been a core part of my spiritual practice. I began... God, well, eight years ago now down this path of really cultivating mindfulness. And it began with some wonderful teachers, but a largely secular kind of mindfulness, very much associated with uh, the individual, with regulating our own awareness, with opening our own awareness. And as I've deepened uh, my practice, I found it necessary not just to go and study with some wonderful teachers of Buddhism and mindfulness here, but to also start to acquaint myself with some of the earliest texts of Buddhism as well, too. And one of the things I found out is that uh, we in the West are really good at individualizing everything, (laughs) tailoring it to just ourselves alone, which actually I think is a denial of the very thing that mindfulness can really help us do in a transformative way. And so one of the things I've been working with recently is a translation of what's called the uh, Satipatthana Sutra, which is all about the Buddha's original instructions on mindfulness. And it says nothing about just getting in touch with your own experience. (laughs) It's about getting in touch with what's inside yourself and fully getting in touch with what's around you and what's getting in touch with what's happening with other people. And one of the things I've come to an awareness of, and this is a little discomforting because I'm one of these kinds of folks, I'm one of these white progressive spiritual folks, Um, you know, at times we really have individualized these practices to the point of almost meaninglessness, you know? I've had wonderful teachers, and I've been to more than my host, my share of, you know, mindfulness practices or yoga classes in which there's no awareness of the whole. It's just about ourselves individually. Uh, I shared one of these stories um, that I first learned in 2014. Don't stop me if you've heard it before. Some of you have heard this before. Uh, summer 2014, when I took a sabbatical from Wellsprings, and I really committed to the first time, for the first time, for a disciplined, uh, with a disciplined yoga practice. And one of the teachers who I really loved, she told this story about what yoga is really about, not the asanas, not the movements, but about our relationship with what's happening. She told a story once about uh, Shavasana. I mean, like, who doesn't love Shavasana? Ah. The effort is done, we've released, we've let go, and we just get to lay there and do nothing. Shavasa can be a great way, by the way, to see where our caring and our not caring can show up. Because Shavasa can be the most challenging thing for some people if we're used to doing and doing and doing and going and going. So the teacher told this story about leading this class that had come to conclusion, the Shavasana happened, and right at the end, namaste, Everyone rolls up their masks, goes away. One of the people in the class made a beeline over to another person in the class. The person they made a beeline to, you see, had fallen asleep 
during Shavasana. It sometimes happens during mindful recovery. We just figure, okay, that person's tired. They need a snooze. They need a rest. No big deal. Well, the person who made the beeline over the person who had been snoring during the Shavasana got right in her face and she said, you ruined my Shavasana with your snoring. It was really aggressive and angry. And the teacher held it back to us. She said, perhaps something around the teaching was really missing here. (laughs) Something around this caring and not caring. We can't help it when we're annoyed by something, can we? We can't judge ourselves for this. But the caring and the not caring simultaneously, that's where the transformative part can come in. It is in many ways like this meme that I recently saw that I absolutely adore. Yes, love yourself, it says, but also analyze and be critical of how you think, act, and behave. Self-love without self-awareness is useless. Be accountable. This is true love. The beginning of self-love for so many of us who are not taught this is absolutely transformative, but it's not all the work itself. It becomes the foundation for true intimacy, for real relationship, for allowing other people to be different than us and still have the opportunity to relate to them as they are while respecting ourselves. As Martin Buber, one of my first teachers, a Jewish mystical teacher, he said, this is the experience of I thou. When we don't treat other people or ourselves as an it, as an object to be manipulated for our pleasure, our own meaning, but when we enter the space of mutuality, of non-exploitation, of getting lost and found simultaneously. This could be music. This could be creativity. This could be conversation. This could be sex. It is truly showing up as a witness to our own experience and to other people's experience. At Wellsprings, we call this how our freedom reaches its fulfillment in connection with others, fully respecting ourselves and other people. And it backs up into one of our core regular teachings here at Wellsprings. comes up all the time in Wellsprings 2.0, listening to our lives. It's from David Foster Wallace, the conclusion of his amazing speech, This is Water. He's talking in this speech, as some of you might know, to a group of graduating seniors college. He says, you don't really have any idea yet what life is going to be with its many petty frustrations. He says, you go to your job and you go to the supermarket and you everyone around you as just an impediment, as just stupid and dead-eyed and dumb, and you just want them all to get out of the way. David Foster Wallace, I think, pointed to the same reality that T.S. Eliot did. This is the moment to care and not to care. And he says, if you really learn how to pay attention, It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that made the stars, love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. I love that he says at the end, he says not to say all this stuff is actually true. (laughs) But he says what's real is that we get to decide. We get to decide how to pay attention to what is happening. I love this sense of that energy. Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, we're all made from the same stardust. 
It turns me back to T.S. Eliot, Ash Wednesday. Remember that thou art dust. This will all end. We are all mortal. This is where the hope from our hurting world arises from learning to care and not to care. That our lives are this dancing balance, this tension, if you will, of energy. And we can find ourselves in home, at home, right within it. We are here. It is home already. There is truly no other place. Life will change. We'll find other homes. But right now, this is what we know. It's another thing T.S. Eliot said that I absolutely love that is written figuratively on my heart. It is that capacity to arrive at the place we started and to know that place and ourselves for the first time. We might call it chargeful with the charge of the soul. Today, I wish you that capacity, that art, that none of us will ever perfect. Caring and letting go. Opening yourself up and finding that connection that we already are. May we care and not care. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? making space, making space for the divine, making space for the breath, making space for the sounds, making space for life. May we allow ourselves to know that on the far side of all of our concepts about what life is, on the far side of all of our ideas of what we think is going to happen, There is this radiant field of energy that the poets have testified to and point to. This field of energy that is already here, that is us, that we already are. And that maybe by turning toward this and practicing this art of loving and letting go simultaneously, we allow the heart to open and grow wide with love, a love that is has the capacity to change and grow with us all throughout this life, not fixed, not stuck, not done, but ever growing, ever opening, releasing as well when the time has come to release. Perhaps we might know for the first time, for the millionth time, that the belonging we seek is already here, that we are already the beloved. We do not have to gain it, or earn it, we simply can be it. Amen. And join us.